Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Eric Hanischek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Rick, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me again. Our topic today is, as before, uh, education, a subject that you've done uh, a vast amount of research and, and study on. But particularly today, I want to talk about recent work that you've done on how education affects growth, especially international growth, growth across countries and uh, development generally. Uh, what have we what have we learned uh, about that about that process about the relationship between growth and income? Well, the I mean, first, excuse me, between education and growth. In the last twenty years, economists have spent a lot of time looking at what determines growth across nations. Human capital, somehow defined, is always important, uh, but there's always been a difficulty in measuring what human capital is. Most of the recent work is concentrated on just school attainment, how many years of schooling somebody has. It turns out that that's not a very good measure of human capital, particularly in an international context. Now, why? Well, first of all, let, let's talk about the, just the general idea of this. The idea of human capital goes back to, uh, I think, Gary Becker in the early 60s, uh, drawing a work of Ted Schultz, and it probably goes back to Adam Smith. Well, Adam Smith had a long section about how the wealth of nations was dependent upon the skills of the population. And so human capital is, is basically uh, the stock of knowledge, know-how, and other intangible things that we call knowledge that's embodied in, in, in people. And it, you can invest in it. You can spend time acquiring it. It depreciates because you forget stuff. So in that sense, it has some of the attributes of, of physical capital, machines and factories, et cetera. So generally, um, trying to measure it is a problem. Absolutely. And so what have we done? One measure we've used is, is years of schooling. And, and how is that work in the empirical studies of, of education in the past? Well, it has been positively related to differences in growth rates across nations, but among other things, people have questioned whether nations that grow faster just buy more of, more of everything, including the amount of schooling they have. So causation would <clears throat> run the other direction. Absolutely. Um, uh, the problem with that is when you think about it, no one would think that a year of fourth grade education in Egypt was the same as a year of fourth grade education in the United States. But when people analyze the relationship between school attainment and growth, they're essentially assuming that a year is a year is a year, no matter where you got it. What's happened... uh, in the research recently that I've participated in and some other people have, is that we have taken measures of the actual cognitive skills as measured by math and science test scores um, and relate that to growth. 
it turns out that that's a much more precise and useful measure of human capital differences than just school attainment. Now, in theory, they wouldn't be much different because in theory, that year of schooling in fourth grade, whether it's in Egypt, Sweden, or Mozambique, should be about learning to read and write and calculate better. But unfortunately, that isn't always the case, correct? Oh, that's, that's absolutely not the case. And much of the debate about school policy in the United States has been that some kids in grade four know a lot more than other kids in grade four, and how can we make sure that everybody knows the same? Well, that's just multiplied in spades when you go to international comparisons. Um, I was recently in Latin America, and South America has traditionally had a fair amount of schooling for its population in terms of years of schooling. But when you put them on an international scale in terms of how much math or science they know at the end of, say, grade nine, it turns out to be abysmal. One answer, of course, would be that, or not one answer, one way to interpret those, the distinction you're trying to make is that there are are innate differences among children, both in America across geographic distances, possibly over time, but certainly internationally. So one reason that fourth graders might not all reach the same level is they may come from different backgrounds in the home, they may have different genetic capabilities, different IQs. So what do we know when you, when you make the point that, that there are dramatic differences? Let me, let me say it this way. Well, one way to interpret what you're saying, I think, is that two countries that have identical average levels of schooling attainment, say a sixth grade level of education, so the average worker in country A has gone to school for six years and the average worker in country B has gone for six years. Unfortunately, the average worker in, in country A doesn't know nearly as much. Their math and reading abilities are much lower. That could be for a variety of reasons. One could be they have a very bad school system. Or it could be because they have different uh, other factors that are making that difference. Do we know anything about what makes those distinctions, causes um, those distinctions? Well, we know that there's a whole bunch of things that go together to make those distinctions. And it differs by country, I think. But schooling has an important element because that's where we formalize, say, our ability to learn math. But parents... Uh, have a lot to do with all of education, including math and science and reading. Um, in, when we start looking between developing countries and developed countries, things like the health status of people and the nutrition of children makes a difference. If kids are coming to school sick and without uh, enough sufficient food, they're not spending a lot of time thinking about how to do subtraction problems. Right, listen to their stomach. So, do we have an idea, though, about do we have any confidence that school quality per se is an important determinant of these cognitive abilities? We're pretty either, confident either in America or, outside, or across across the world. Sure, we're pretty confident of that. In the United States, we're very confident of that. Uh, we know that different schools, and in particular, different teachers can get a lot more learning out of kids than others. Um, and we're seeing similar things internationally also, where the quality of schools does make a difference. 
But it, it's also very complicated. In the United States, we also know that family background is an important determinant of achievement, as it is internationally. Is that view, particularly in the United States, controversial? Do people get, uh, you know, I, I think about the anecdotal evidence we all have, the armchair evidence we have. We all remember certain teachers who had an enormous impact on us, although it's always possible that we don't remember the impact that others had. But I think most people, when asked, do you think the quality of the teacher matters, would say, well, of course it does. We certainly pay an enormous amount of attention to it as parents and, and as children. We remember uh, those effects. Is that a controversial idea in the United States? The idea that there are large differences in teacher quality is, is not controversial either with the lay public or with researchers. Researchers are pretty confident of that. What is controversial is what do you make of that? Because we think of various policies, generally governmental policies, the way we run our schools here, uh, that might affect the quality of teachers, and then it becomes very controversial. Such as paying quality teachers more than lower quality, higher quality teachers more than lower quality teachers, would that be the kind of issue that would come up? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, um, <clears throat> do you want to have differential pay or performance pay? If you want to have performance pay, how are you going to measure performance? Uh, and there's a whole series of questions like that. Um, how do we attract better teaching, better potential teachers into the profession? Um, these are all very, very controversial matters. It seems kind of obvious to me that it's really hard to measure uh, who's a good quality teacher, but I think I think you've found, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the principals know who the good teachers are, just like the parents know. It, it might be hard to measure it because, of course, some teachers might attract a certain quality student to start with, and ex post you might be attributing some of the skill of the teacher to the students, et cetera, et cetera. But we know, don't we? I, I think that we have a pretty good idea, and it's not just the principals. I think that the parents know and the other teachers know and almost everybody in the school knows. Um, a, within a range, I think that what principals, parents, and other teachers know uh, is who are the very best teachers and who are the very worst teachers, and there's a lot of confusion in the middle about exactly are you a little bit better teacher than I am or a little bit worse teacher than I am sure. when we're in the middle. It's interesting. I, this is a digression again from our main topic, but I, I'm fascinated by it. Finding an objective measure of teacher quality that would be the basis of compensation is obviously extremely difficult. A subjective measure uh, puts power in a person's hands, the principals or a compensation committee, and yet, we do that all the time in the world of business uh, and everywhere else in the economy. And yet, partly because it's a public arena, perhaps, uh, people are very uncomfortable with that in the school system. It's a little bit because it's a public arena. Um, it's a little bit because teaching in the United States and in virtually every country of the world is heavily unionized. And the unions typically don't want to make these distinctions. Um, uh, so these, these um, issues come up. The, the issue is trying to separate out the value added of the teacher from the quality of the kids in the classroom and other factors. We're getting better at doing that, actually, in an objective way. 
uh, we can at least do it in statistical models of which teachers get the greatest growth in achievement, sort of given where the kids start out, which, where do they end up at the end of the year. Um, that's one thing. The second thing is that the big difference in what you brought up in teaching is that in business, um, managers are rewarded directly for their performance. So they have an incentive not to just randomly distribute funds, but they want the people that work for them to do well because their compensation and performance is going to be based in part on how well the people working for them are doing. In schools, we don't necessarily uh, have performance pay for principals and superintendents, and so if they aren't subject to performance pay, it's hard for them. It's hard to have a system that allows them to decide who gets what funds because they're not responsible for necessarily choosing the good ones. But in private schools, of which we have a, a thriving sector, although it's, uh, it's not the majority, but we have a thriving private sector, uh, principals are not literally compensated on student performance. But, of course, if student performance is atrocious or parents perceive it as atrocious, they can fire the principal. Um, and yet, it's my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's my impression that many private schools do not have merit pay either. Is that true? And is that, if it is true, is that a result of the large public sector uh, that, that competes with, with those teachers? Why isn't there more merit pay in the private system? Or is there? Is well, true? we don't have great evidence on what happens in the private sector because many private schools don't volunteer data on what's going on, so it's hard to see. It looks like there's a little bit more variation in salaries in private schools than there is in public schools. But I think that the real answer is, is what you said before. We don't pay principals more if they get high performance this year, but if they have bad performance three years in a row, they're probably not the, not the principal the next year. I think the same thing holds at the teacher level that it's not the variation in pay so much as it is a willingness to make judgments about who is effective and who isn't and make retention decisions in the job based upon their performance. We don't do that or pay differentials in the public sector. Well, what you're saying is fascinating. <clears throat> it's, that, it's that the ability to fire and hire, which is a different, it's a blunter, it's a more blunt carrot and stick than, than pay changes, but that, that uh, the observed uh, teacher population in a private school has already been selected, we presume, for, and survived to meet a certain minimum standard, whereas we may not have that confidence in the public, in the public school. Absolutely. Well, yeah. that's hey, well, let's turn to the international sector, which where we started and, uh, before this digression. So tell, tell me what, you started off by saying that years of schooling has is, is not been a very effective uh, predictor of growth rates across countries. So countries with high levels of schooling can have uh, disappointing growth rates. Um, but that cognitive ability is correlated strongly. Tell me about some of the findings that you've had along those lines. Sure. Um, since the mid-1960s, actually, there have been a series of international tests given largely in math and science, but 
more recently in reading. Um, recently, they've become very well known. There is something called the PISA test, um, which is the program on international student assessment run by the OECD. Um, which is the organization of... Economic Cooperation and Development. Which is mainly the European and... It, it has historically right? been the developed countries yeah. of the world. It's the European and North American, but Japan. it has Japan and Korea and others around. They have developed tests to give to all of the students in member nations and then a variety of other nations that volunteer to participate. In Europe, a number of school systems, Switzerland and Germany in particular, got the results back from the PISA test and they became a um, subject of intense national discussion. If you say PISA in Germany, it has nothing to do with a bell tower in Italy. <laughs> it, what it means is that performance on international tests and the Germans were shocked that their school, that they always presumed, as many nations do, is best the in best the in the world, of course. Uh, was not the best in the world. And moreover, it had a lot more variation in performance within their students than they ever anticipated. It has driven a lot of discussion of education in European countries. Anyways, when did uh, that when did that happen? Well, the PISA tests were begun in 2000, and now they've been given two more times. Um, and European nations have been watching their performance. Hold on to that for a sec. We hear a lot about how American students, historically at least, don't perform as well as other students in the world. That's not this these data, I assume. It That's is on these data, and it's on other tests. Um, there have been um, since the mid-1960s, something like 15 or so different tests administered to different uh, subjects and grades around the world. So math grade 4, science grade 8, and so forth. Um, but there have been these different administrations. Historically, the United States has been in the middle or below average on these tests, particularly when you talk about students at the secondary school level, at the high school level. Um, they, American students have just not done particularly well. This is part of the reason, this is why I brought this up, isn't part of the reason the population of students that ended up taking the test, doesn't a wider group of students take the test in the United States on some of these rather than, than in other populations in other countries? Um, that's certainly a true statement if we look at 1965. Okay. If we look today, um, the United States among these same OECD developed countries is something like 14th from the top in terms of the years of school completed on average by its student population. So there are many countries that are educating more kids. Or educating their kids longer. Longer. <laughs> they, they are, kids are in school longer. And being in school longer, um, I think the point you were making is that they're more likely to take these tests. Correct. And so they have a wider group today than the United States taking these tests. Historically, that wasn't the case, and, in, and it's also not the case in terms of developing countries. 
in developing countries, it's often a select group that's still in school right. when, when these tests are given, and so the performance is measuring that of a select group. But, <laughs> but when we look at the performance of developing countries on these PISA tests or the other ones, we find that the developing countries are nowhere near where the European countries are, the United States are. So the cognitive abilities as measured by these tests, even though it's a select group, the ones who are the best, presumably right. in these poor countries who are still in school, who can afford to stay in school, are vastly inferior in terms of the level of knowledge. Absolutely. Um, let me see if I can give you some sense of, of what this is. Um, if we sort of lined up everybody in the world according to their scores, and we looked at where the average European kid was. Um, in Peru, 8% uh, of the kids taking the, the test would be above the bottom 15% of the European kids. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a huge difference. And those are 8% of... Of anybody going to school, including those that went to a lot more schooling and so forth. But you mentioned that some of these are done at, at lower grades, right? Yes. So, so if you did fourth grade math, would that still be true that, that the Peruvians, only 8% of the Peruvian kids who took fourth grade, who got to fourth grade, would be as high as the bottom 15% of the European scores? Roughly. Boy, that's depressing. Roughly. No, and so, and that's the way it is across many of these developing countries. That's the, um, what leads me in a policy sense to question some of the things we actually do internationally in terms of schooling. For example, the World Bank has extensive education programs in developing countries in an effort to try to improve their overall economic performance, the human capital of these developing countries. There are two initiatives right now. One is called Education for All, and the other is the Millennium Development Goals. Both of them are very similar, at least in terms of education. They want by the year 2015, or it keeps getting pushed back, of course, but um, by the year 2015, um, all children get to basically junior high level, lower secondary level in the international sense um, of schooling. And the World Bank and other international agencies have been pushing that. And it's a, a crude measure of just years of schooling. Right. And the, the, it's a great sounding measure, and it's a great goal, is Keep that, that all, all the kids can get there. But by focusing so much on just the goal of how many years of schooling kids get, they neglect the issue of are they learning anything when they're in the school. And that's the quality issue. And I think the evidence we have relating these performance on these international tests, cognitive skills tests to growth, suggests it's, it's what they know that counts and it's going to count. Not how long their rear end was keeping the seat warm. Precisely, precisely. So that if we're really interested in helping these countries to develop we have to develop more effective strategies to improve the quality of the schooling, what the kids are learning. And as we pointed out at the very early part, 
quality of schooling is just one component. There's parents and other things there. But quality of schooling is the one thing that we can generally control from a governmental standpoint. Or hope to. Or hope to. Um, and so that's why I emphasize quality of schooling. But it says that that's going to change a lot in these developing countries if we want these countries to pick themselves up and develop. Just a, a footnote on the World Bank program you mentioned. How, how do they run those programs? Are they, are they giving grants of money? to? Are they rewarding countries that, that have higher uh, average rates of attendance? What's the, do you know anything about that? Well, the World Bank um, is generally um, in the loan business. They, are, they view themselves as a bank, mm-hmm. um, and they make loans to developing countries. What they are is low interest rate loans and sometimes no interest rate loans um, to do social programs. People at the World Bank interact with people in the local economies to, to structure programs that they think will be effective. So it's a, it's a bargaining situation in some ways that the local governments have their views of how they want to develop education, and then the people from the World Bank have some other views, and somehow out the end, these monies are used to support a program. So it could go to build, <coughs> build a new school for an underserved area, I assume, hire new teachers, other things like that. Lots of the money ends up buying new buildings. Which isn't a bad thing in, in right. general, but uh, buying new buildings uh, simply doesn't lead to big quality changes if you have the old teachers still doing it. Many of these countries have teachers that wouldn't do very well on the same eighth grade math test as their kids doing the teaching. If they're unwilling to change those programs, how they re- recruit and retain and pay teachers in these developing countries, um, it's unlikely that just buying new buildings will make a difference. And my understanding is that there's also a challenge on the student side that it's called a year of schooling. Sometimes they're not there, they're home helping with the harvest, but they're called attending because that's what they're measuring and the government's going to reward them on. That's also a problem, correct? Absolutely. You have problems of student attendance. You also have, in many of these countries, problems of teacher attendance. Uh, Frequently, these countries get into what looks like a bad equilibrium, where they don't pay much for their teachers, and their teachers don't give them much, and that's the answer. So that in many of these countries, you have very low salaries for teachers, which encourages the teachers to have second jobs, and then their second jobs become the primary job, and teaching doesn't get much attention. So now let's get to the, the punchline. You, you said there are these vast differences in cognitive achievement measured by these tests. And it, it could be the case that, that those cognitive differences aren't important. I mean, who cares? How important is it really that, that you can do uh, long division? You can use a calculator you know, there's reading, yes, and writing, but, you know, maybe, so you can't write a great essay, but in the workplace in a poor country, how important is that really? And yet, what you found is a big correlation between those test scores and performance in the, in the, in the growth world rate, right? Absolutely. Um, let me see if I can uh, give you a sense of, of 
how big the differences are. Um, what the research on growth rates suggests is that if you could move the average kid in Mexico up to the average kid in the United States in terms of what they knew in math and science, that the annual growth rate in Mexico could increase by as much as 2% per year. 2% um, per year in terms of growth rate when it compounds over time it turns out to be a, an unbelievably large number. Um, it also suggests that um, uh, if you could move the United States up to the, what I would call, a good European country, sort of Denmark or Netherlands or something like that, Sweden, um, that United States growth could increase by one-half to one percent per year because of the improved skills of its workers. Now, these are long-run effects because you, if you improve the quality of kids' learning when they're in schools, you still have to wait till they get out in the labor force to make it count. Mm -hmm. And it takes a while, a, a time to do all of that. But the long-run implications are really quite uh, dramatic in terms of the impacts on student performance. That would be a, that, that's unbelievably important. Of course, I was thinking when you said that about the Mexican student becoming as skilled as the American student in math and science that they'd come to America. Um, they have an even bigger incentive to come to America, which would be good for America's growth rate, but maybe not Mexico's. But presumably, if there were more Mexican students learning math and science, there'd be more opportunity in Mexico to do math and science. Um, how comfortable are you with those conclusions? How 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 robust? Do you think those those are? Let me ask it in a particular policy way. If we really could take a poor country like Peru and starting in in K kindergarten or or preschool, improve the quality of schooling through up through high school, understanding that yes, along the way some of them would drop out, and yes, along the way it would take a while for things to work. Are you really you really think it would it would affect their growth rate? Are you confident in that's in that empirical finding? I'm actually uh, maybe overconfident, but uh, extraordinarily confident in that finding. Um, there's now been a lot of work done on trying to relate growth rates to to a variety of different factors, and and there are many things that actually enter into growth rates. Uh, the standard things that economists know about security of property rights and sure. open trade and all of these things affect growth rates. Then, but, we, have, then we have <clears throat> subjective, intangible things like culture and religious background and, and other things. Right. Um, Harder to measure, but people try. In terms of the quality of schooling, um, people have looked at those relationships. They hold up sort of regardless of what other factors you consider, they hold up almost regardless of, of what specific measures of cognitive skills you use. You know, there are tests at different points in time. If you throw some of them out, as some of them aren't as good as others and so forth. These relationships hold up. What's more interesting uh, is some suggestive things that my co-author Ludger Woosman and I have been looking at. Over 
time, when we've measured these tests, we see that some country, countries have gotten better on these tests, and some countries have actually gotten worse on these tests over time. If you compare the countries that have gotten better on these tests to those that have gotten worse on these tests, you see that the growth rates in the countries that have gotten better have jumped up over time, and the growth rates on those that have gotten worse have actually fallen back or been less robust. Um, <clears throat> so this, is, this gives me some confidence that the precise question you ask is answered affirmatively. If we could change these cognitive skills, would we see it in terms of growth rates? I agree with you. That's really powerful evidence because, you know, one of the things that you know, some people looked at is, you know, the, those test scores are correlated with, with growth, but that could be, say, because of IQ, some kind of native inherent ability of the student population, and that although these cognitive differences matter, it's not the quality of schooling. There's nothing you can do about it, just a fact. Some kids are smarter than others in some countries, and that's their, we're stuck with those outcomes. But the, the, way, the evidence you're giving me now is much more uh, dramatically pointing to quality of education, although let me, let me challenge that. First, give me an idea, of, and it's hard to do on, on, on a podcast, but try to give me an idea of what the magnitudes are that when you say that countries that have gotten done worse on the test, grown faster. So give me an idea, if you can, of the magnitudes and speculate as to why a country would do worse. Uh, you know, if it's, if it's a 3% decrease, uh, maybe it's just random. If it's a dramatic decrease, did their schooling system do poorly? I mean, how, why would they change? Well, there, there have been too many that do dramatically worse. There have been some that do dramatically better. Um, the, the current darling of the world today is Finland. Finland uh, saw dramatic increases in the performance of its students over the last 30 years, so that it's now at the top of these OECD tests. Um, and what's the speculated reason for that? Well, it, it, all of these are very anecdotal reasons, and, and I'm not sure that anybody knows why it's Finland. It, it could be there's nothing else to do in Finland than study. I don't know. I doubt it. <laughs> it's probably it's an not appalling the, hypothesis. It's right? probably not the, not the case. And, uh, I, I apologize. Be and before there was something to do there, <laughs> it got darker in Finland earlier. They got, they got more of the country above the Arctic Circle. Um, we don't have good ways of identifying this. Uh, we know that some countries, for example, Norway, over time, became much more worried about equality of schools and performance. And in fact, their average test scores fell a little bit over time in Norway. Is it that they concentrated too much on trying to equalize everything and not enough on the equality? We're not sure. Um, Sweden went to a dramatic uh, decentralization of their schooling system, and their scores increased over time. It's suggestive kinds of things, but we don't, we don't have anything well, definitive. Obviously, the challenge is there's so many things changing at once. One of the more obvious things to worry about in those kind of measurements is immigration. Uh, and immigration, where the, it's true that the, the school scores might be changing, but that may be because the, population, the nature of the population, the quality of the students has changed over time. Sure. 
Sure, absolutely. And um, lots of European countries have had dramatic influxes. Um, Can you get data separated out on those by pop native versus immigrant population? Because I, I think, think in the United you, States it's a dramatic factor. You can't quite get the scores um, separated out, but uh, uh, you can see you could get measures of how many immigrants there were over time and, and do that. I don't have the, those data. But, I mean, it, um, so in the United States, we know immig immigrants in general do worse than the native population. That's always the excuse given for the abysmal performance of California students on national tests when we compare around the U.S. Um, and, in fact, California has a very large Hispanic population and large disadvantaged population. Um, so isn't that what explains California's position? Well, in fact, California, um, I think like a lot of these European countries, um, does badly for its Hispanic students, but it does almost equally as badly for its white <laughs> students. Um, it does almost equally as badly for the kids of college-educated parents in California. And I think that that's what you find, is that good school systems actually do well by disadvantaged populations, traditionally disadvantaged populations, as, as they do well by their standard population. It, it could still be the case that all the immigrants are at the bottom of the distribution in Finland or Sweden, right. uh, but they're doing better by those people at the bottom of their distribution than in other countries. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's very plausible. So you said a few minutes ago that the, the policy implications for institutions like the World Bank and, and, and there are, of course, other institutions involved in these development uh, attempts should focus less on years of schooling and more on the quality of schooling. What would you recommend, since, since there isn't a consensus on why nations improve their test scores or their cognitive abilities, what would you recommend for either organizations like the World Bank or the domestic governments of those developing countries if they actually care about their people? Most, most don't, but some do. What should they pursue? What, what, might, what do we know about what increases quality of schooling? Well, as, as I mentioned, quality of teachers is very important in thinking about how to different incentives to get better teachers in. Now, usually, the direct incentives, like just paying higher performance. Let's just double so salary. Well, let's just double salaries of teachers. Yeah, we could we could start by just doubling salaries of teachers. The uh, only problem with that is that, um, as a as a general economic theorem, bad teachers like more pay as much as good <laughs> teachers, and so you would tend to retain the bad teachers along with the good teachers. I think they like it even more because they have worse <laughs> alternatives. So the, the, the higher salary is even more important for them. I didn't want to push that hard. <laughs> um, what we have is a little suggestive evidence internationally that some of the major institutional features of education systems make a difference. We see that having better accountability systems based upon student outcomes seems to improve performance where they're instituted. We see that having more autonomy in making decisions at the local district and local school level 
seems to lead to higher performance, at least if there's a good accountability system. It's not clear that autonomy and, and decentralization makes any sense if you don't itself, have, a, yeah. have accountability systems. There's some evidence, although well, it's actually a little bit more mixed than that on autonomy and, and accountability, uh, that more parental choice of what schools their kids go to makes a, a difference. Um, on that, there have been a number of experiments in Chile and Colombia and other places with choice of schools. And it, I read the evidence as suggesting that there's some tendency to get better results with choice, but it's not an, a night and day situation. It's kind of what's discouraging to me about this area is that, as you point out, Worldwide, unionization is very common. Uh, public provision is very common. Public provision tends to be associated with less accountability rather than more. Um, if, if anything, the United States would seem to have uh, the most robust private school system, certainly at the, at the college, at the university level. I don't know if that's true at the... It's not true at the primary and secondary level. It's true at the university level. There are countries um, like the Netherlands where you have um, a religious sector and a public sector that are both very large. Mm -hmm. Now, they also tend to, to follow the same standards and same regula regulations, so it's a little bit different than the United States where if you're a private school, you can do virtually anything you want as long as you can attract uh, students. Mm -hmm. But, but what, that's, what, I was gonna su what I was suggesting, and like your reaction to, is the hope of radical reform seems to be low, in that when we were talking earlier about trends, you said, well, Sweden decentralized, but it's pretty rare that the political process in a country is going to take a radical stab at something. Uh, you could go in the other direction. You know, you could imagine a, a dictator coming to power and, and ruining a school system. Usually you don't see radical change to reform a school system. Are there any examples out there of experiments? I'm thinking of, you know, Chile and social security reform. Chile actually put in a private social security system with lots of, I'm sure, dire predictions of failure. Turned out it could actually be done. And that's out there, it's not, it hasn't convinced every nation in the world that it's possible. It's still a lot of anxiety in the United States. But are there any models out there of experimentation or reform that, that might give us some information or, or hope? Well, we're starting to see some both national or, or governmental experimentation and private experimentation. There's actually a new movement to run experiments with different schools programs, uh, in, particularly in developing countries, where it's not as expensive to run an experiment as, as it is in the United States. This, I think, is a very, very exciting development uh, because we're starting to learn some things that we have, uh, can place some faith in the answers because the, the way, if the experiments are, are well done, you get a lot more confidence in the answers 
that something has an effect or doesn't have an effect uh, from these experiments. So there's some experiments in India, there's some experiments in Chile, uh, Colombia, of a variety of different kinds um, from the micro experiments, like does it make a difference if you provide a, um, <clears throat> a flip chart with paper for the teacher to write on in the classroom versus not? That's mm -hmm. sort of the, at the micro level. I assume that when there's no blackboard either, right? Right, right. there's this no all blackboard. They have. There's that's right. Though. That's right. And experiments with giving textbooks or not, or um, the monitoring whether the teacher is in attendance or not. So there's some of those. Mm -hmm. There are also the larger systems level experiments, like introducing vouchers, which Chile has done and Colombia has done in various places. Um, so there's a range of things starting to come along. Um, those are the kinds of things that I would think the World Bank should be looking at very, very, very closely because information is how they get leverage on their money. If they can find something that works in Peru and transport it to Ecuador, uh, it has a much bigger impact than trying to buy a program in Peru and then buy a, another program in Ecuador. Are they the biggest player in this game? Is the World Bank the large, the most influential potential reformer of, of schools internationally? Besides the domestic market, of course, the, you'd the, hope they wouldn't be necessary. When we're talking about it's like this is a, some kind of exogenous savior, but you'd think domestic politics and influences would encourage reform. Of course, that also yeah. isn't always the case. Well, I think the domestic is is the right answer, uh, is the largest. The World Bank is often small in some sense relative to the entire system. Sure. Um, uh, World Bank is the largest international lender, I guess, in, in, in terms of social programs, although they work in a lot of other areas outside of education. So their education portfolio, sure. I suspect, is small. Um, what about the UN? Are they doing anything? No, they're um, promoting, they're the ones who have the Millennium Development Goals, and they're promoting different goals, uh, but they're not really a funder of a lot of these things, as best I can tell. Um, I, I'm not actually sure of, of which uh, areas of support comes from. I know that there are some private foundations that are supporting a number of these experiments I talked about to try to learn information. A little bit off subject, but related conceptually. Do we know anything about homeschooling as a solution? Right, one. As a, people have different perceptions of how much parents care about their kids and how much they pressure they could potentially put on a school, either as consumers or as political activists to improve things. But one dramatic step that people take in the United States is they opt out. They put their they educate their kids themselves. Obviously, some people are not particularly good at that, um, but I'm sure many are. And it's also clear that. 30 kids in a room or 15 kids in a room trying to do something en masse has all kinds of social and other challenges. It's bizarre to me that we've, it's just de facto presumed that the right way to educate kids is to put them in a room in rows with a teacher in front of the room. And, and the, the success of homeschooling is a dramatic indicator that, that there are alternatives. Is homeschooling 
in the United States at least, where we have a relatively wealthy population that can afford to spend time with their kids uh, in the, during the day. Is there any evidence there about quality and, and cognitive ability? None. Um, in fact, right now we have a hard time in the United States even estimating how many kids are being homeschooled. They just disappear from the system. So the estimates run from 1% to 2% of students are being homeschooled. But that's 100% difference. Yeah, 1% to 2%. <laughs> and, yeah. um, uh, and it's, um, we're, we're talking about a large number of, of kids because we have 50 million kids in school. So um, we're talking about you know, somewhere between a half and a million kids in school, but we're not quite sure how many. Uh, we know nothing about what goes on there, and, and obviously, uh, I think without even having any data, we can assert that there's a huge variation in what goes on uh, in different homes. But they're not, they're, not in, they're not taking these standardized tests, right? In general, they're not. Um, they show and, the, up. and let me let me come back on the, on this taking standardized tests. When in the prior discussion we talked about where is the impetus for change and so forth, the largest um, possibility is changing the domestic school system. That's one of the reasons why I'm a, such a big fan of accountability. Accountability to me is getting information about student performance and making it public. Most parents, uh, at least. 15 years ago, before it was common to, to have publicly available testing information, had a hard time figuring out how good their own schools were. Mm -hmm. They still have some difficulty sure, figuring out because you have to separate out the, the school from the kid and so forth. But providing information on whether, in some real sense, the kids of a school are competitive with the kids at other schools is the first step. One of the things that's happened from No Child Left Behind and national accountability in the United States as operated through the, the individual states is that in some cases, parents are starting to ask questions of their school. Why aren't our kids doing better? Why aren't our kids doing as well as the district down the road that looks like they have about the same parental population as ours, but their kids are do performing better. That's what I think has to be taken to developing countries also. Information has to be available on the quality of the schools, both locally and nationally. A number of these developing countries have never participated in any of this international testing. Uh, in part, I think, because they're a little bit afraid of what the answers are going to look like. Yeah, I certainly agree with you that information is the first step toward fixing a problem. I do worry about the, the teaching to the test phenomenon, and I think that objection can be an excuse for lazy administrators and teachers, but I think it's a real excuse. I mean, when I think about my kids... Um, Test scores is not what I want them to get out of school. Of course, my kids are not typical. No one's are. Um, but there is a risk there that having kids who can score high on a math and a reading test is not a really... Go back to our earlier question of whether the, you believe the numbers of, of the impact if we could increase these scores. 
There are other things that go along with those higher scores. So you, we do want to be careful on that. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are several elements wrapped up in that last thought that you had. One is we need to have really good tests, high-quality tests. Yeah. If we had really high-quality tests, I have personally no qualms about yeah. teaching to the test. I do. Yeah, that's um, very well said. <laughs> um, uh, secondly, we want to worry the, about whether we've identified the things we care most about. Right, and right now, under most accountability systems, we say math and reading have the highest priority, and then uh, because they're the ones that are tested and measured in the accountability system. I frankly think that there's a lot of support for that idea, also. Um, now, you don't want schools to completely turn off and not do anything else, but there's very little evidence that that's what schools are doing. Uh, there are worse things in the world than not teaching economics in high school, for example, which I assume taking economics in high school doesn't help your math and your reading scores. Um, and if schools decide to do less economics and more math and reading, it would probably be a better thing. Uh, well, that's precisely the point. Um, one of the um, things that's thrown up to attack accountability is that people are spending much more time doing math and reading and not as much time doing everything else. But that's precisely what the structure of this idea is, um, that those are the most important first-round things that we would identify because almost everything else builds on, the, sure. on uh, being able to read and do math. You don't do much economics if you can't read. Now, economics might not help reading, but reading certainly helps economics. Absolutely. And I, you know, when I when I'm critical of high school economics, it's mainly because it's often taught as a finance class and how to invest in the stock market. It's doubly bad. It's not economics, and then it's often structured as a contest, which encourages students to invest in individual stocks, which is not always the best strategy for life. But that's how you win the contest by taking high risk. It's a very strange idea, but but you know, it's easy to say. You know, math and science versus economics. I think most parents would say, "Well, I want my I want critical thinking. I want my students to learn how to think." And I think the challenge, which we do, that is what we want. The challenge is, and and math and reading help you learn how to think, as you point out, in all kinds of dimensions. They're their own form of thinking, and they also lead to the tools that help you think in other more sophisticated ways. But I think the worry there is that it would be hard. It's hard to devise a good test on analytical ability or critical thinking or creative thinking. And I think there's the challenge. Well, you put several things together that I would naturally break apart. I think you can have standardized tests that test high-level thinking and high sk skills of high-order thinking ability, and that's, that's possible. Um, not, we're not quite sure about measuring creativity and how that fits in. Not sure we can teach creativity either. But. And it's, yeah, it's not obvious that the schools are teaching creativity. Um, you can't just say they're not teaching math, so they must be teaching creativity. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it is an interesting thing how some of the things we would associate with creativity, such as art, are, are not taught to the untalented students after a certain grade level. 
Right? We think that a, math, a student should learn math all the way through high school, which I think is a good idea. Hmm. We know that there are students who are not good at it. We force them through it anyway. We often give them bad scores. We probably sometimes water down the content to help do better, which is not ideal for the better students. It's interesting that we don't force people through art. Uh, the world might be a better place if we did. I don't know. You can say no, Rick. It's the worst place. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if it would be a better place, but uh, um, no. And so, the accountability on all of these things in the United States or in Peru is a matter of getting the right balance. You don't want to say that the only thing we do is worry about algebra problems, mm -hmm. and that's all we care about. On the other hand, you want to make sure that people can do some algebra problems because that's the analytical thinking that people are going to use later on. Yeah, it's an interesting issue when, when we talk about centralization and decentralization. In a purely private system, the standards of accountability would emerge from the competitive process and there would presumably be a, a wide array of types of accountability. There'd be some parents who wanted their kids to particularly do well in certain subjects. One of the worries I have is when, when you impose a, a national accountability standard, you, um, besides the political issue, which is always a challenge, of how that's, whether that's going to be correctly designed, you, you do force everybody into the same box. So you have to argue that there are some boxes everybody's going to be happy to be forced into. And I think math and reading would be that box, sure, or at sure. least reading. Maybe a, little, <laughs> maybe a little science, too. Yeah. Um, I think that that's true. And part of the local versus federal standards and so forth, um, I think, is overblown. People say, well, our country is built upon having a weak federal government and, and everything is done at the state level. Our economy is built upon free exchange across the states, and yep. we know certainly that there's free exchange of labor across the states. So what the kids in Arkansas learn has implications for the industry in California and other states later on. To me, the federal government could provide some leadership, uh, at least in developing what are the standards for basic core subjects, and they could offer a lot of help to individual states. There's no reason why we have to reinvent the standards for algebra in 50 states in the District of Columbia, um, because that the, we're just not going to end up with something different. Yeah, benchmarking is would seem to be an area in, in education would seem to be an untapped opportunity. Um, it, it's remarkable to me how little communication there is ac across school states, school districts, and what works and what doesn't work. There's just a lot of opportunity for more information to be provided for sure. Absolutely, but every state today has their own standards. It's usually whatever the state flower or logo is, so there's the sunshine state standards and the peach state standards. and, and That's Georgia. I, yes, you got I'm it. I'm hoping. You, you got it. You got it. Um, and you go across the states, and um, they're pretty much required to have their own standards, but the, certainly the problems in algebra don't change across states. Uh, 
maybe somebody has a better idea of the right sequence to do learning of math. But again, as you say, that should be something that then becomes public knowledge and the best sequence should drive out the worst sequence in an ideal world. But today that doesn't happen. Yeah, well, the incentives aren't there, as we've talked about in in our last podcast and someone in this one. Uh, Has the web helped that process of of information sharing at all? Not a lot. Um, It's not so much the sharing, it's the development of the information. We don't have, I think in any state of the union today, a culture of evaluation and learning from what goes on in the schools. Um, Similarly, in, you know, we keep flipping back a little bit, in developing countries, we have none of that either. Um, So the systems never get better. They assume that there's a right answer, and if we could just bring in the right answer, everything would be good. Magic. Uh, But that's not the case in the United States or in any place, that we know exactly how to bring all of the kids in one of our central Los Angeles schools up to what we would call proficiency in math and reading. It's going to take some experimentation. It probably differs a little bit from one school to another, exactly how it's done, depending upon the personnel they have and so forth. But you would want to learn and be able to throw out the bad ideas when you uh, experimented. Today, uh, in California and in many other states, we wouldn't know what's working and what isn't. We just don't have the information available to say, if a program is doing a good job or not. Um, depressing. <laughs> good for education researchers, though. There, there's, there's hope. Well, that's why we keep pushing the idea of uh, better research. Um, as the producers of research, <laughs> we, we like to have our industry recognized and, and growing. Kill two birds with one stone. <laughs> Make the world a better place and improve your opportunities. But I think in this case, they, they probably do go together. <laughs> My guest today has been Rick Hanischek, the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>